and this will be our third and final uh, series within a series, uh, Does God Exist? Some of you are like, thank God. If I hear another philosophical argument from Nate, I'm literally gonna turn over. I can't take this anymore. And some of you are like, oh, I wanna hear more. So I, you know, I can't please everybody, but this is a, a section where you're gonna get into that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's important to look at reasons and know why, uh, what we believe and why we believe it because when we're going through hard times in our lives, doubts creep up in our minds. And my, my hope and my prayer, though this has been a very heady sub-series here uh, on God's existence, my hope and my prayer is that it's strengthened your faith and given you confidence to share your faith. Um, and so that's, this will be our final kind of installment of Does God Exist series and looking at the problem, which is a common problem of why does God allow evil? So a common text that people go to for our Old Testament reading is Job. And then our New Testament lessons based, of course, on our series in Romans, Romans 1.19. So we do verse by verse preaching here because we believe the Bible is a book that changes lives and all of it changes lives. Reading through all of God's word, don't taking out not taking out parts, but looking at the whole scope of God's word can change and transform our lives. So we're a Bible preaching verse by verse uh, teaching church here. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament reading because they're both from the same God and they both point to the same thing, which is a person and work of Jesus Christ. So both the Old and the New Testament are clearly connected. And so that's why we have an Old New Testament reading and that's why we go through verse by verse. And as we're gonna get through the book of Romans, there's gonna be some really, we're gonna tackle some really controversial stuff in Romans. And uh, you're gonna wonder why so many people do topical sermons so they can skip over things. Uh, because there, there is some really uh, stuff that really has us thinking here in the book of Romans that are controversial for our culture, uh, but is important for us to hear and to understand how this book can transform our lives. So Job 38, hear now the inspired living word of God. There is no error at any point here it is. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its base sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with the doors when the, it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And who prescribed for it and set bars and doors? And said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall you your proud waves be stayed. And that concludes the reading of our Old Testament holy word from God. Now our, our two new, new Testament lesson, which comes from Romans 1.19. Hear now the inspired, infallible word of the Lord. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And that concludes the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray that God would bless and anoint and grow us and change us by the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord, we come to you today knowing that we have no merit or strength in ourselves, but we look to you, Lord Jesus, as the source of all of our merit, our strength. When we are weak and we have no merit in, our, in ourselves, Lord, we need you, Lord. We pray that if somebody is hurting this morning and needs you, Jesus, that they would reach out 
in faith and trust in you and that you would change their lives, Lord, to serve and love you, to trust in you, to have eternal life, Lord. We pray that you work through your word this morning and you work through your truth as you always do. May your Holy Spirit be active in our hearts to listen carefully, to uh, love you and serve you, even when we go through suffering, Lord. Help us trust in you. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. So as I've been saying, we, we as Christians, I mean, you look at Romans 119, it's very clear and playing that the existence of God is clear and playing. Um, and uh, we have to say this over and over again because many people have said God's existence is obscure, it's hidden. Um, and there's actually a book, I saw someone reading it in graduate school and I've, I've looked at it and it's called The Elusive God. And so uh, um, the person doesn't believe in inerrancy who wrote doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God. Um, and thinks it's wrong. But anyways, this guy was arguing that God was, was hidden. And so it's common to hear that you, you know, God's existence is obscure or hidden. It's in Christian books or claimed Christian books. And so uh, this, this really addresses a, a drift in our culture that wants to maintain that God's existence is something that's obscure and you just have to have faith. And I, I want to remind us of this verse uh, because there is so much confusion. This very clear teaching, it says, for what can be known, this is Romans 119, for what can be known about God is plain. It's obvious, it's straightforward. It's not something you can avoid because God has shown it to them. And as it said previously, people have to suppress the truth. It's so clear. They have to avoid this obvious truth that God exists and he requires us to know him and to have faith in Jesus. So all, all these things are very clear to us in in scripture that, that God has revealed himself in this way. It's not hidden at all. Um, now, the biggest objection to the hiddenness uh, or to, to the um, claim that God's existence is obvious, the, the very uh, largest or the most well-known, it's probably written about the most, is the so-called problem of evil and suffering and pain. Uh, we all experience that. We experience suffering, pain, and loss. We've experienced people doing evil evil things. And this is really tough, right? Um, I mean, I, I have, I think many of us, all of us have a, a special heart for children. And uh, it's just so difficult to see a toddler or a small child go through suffering and pain or evil things being done, abused under that child. It just, it just wrenches your heart, especially if they have Christian parents and they're praying for their, their child to be saved and the child ends up dying. I mean, that is so disorientingly painful and tough and difficult. I'm gonna share a story, but um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know this couple well, but you know, I know how Facebook is. You just, you see everything that's going on. Anybody you've ever met or people you haven't met are on Facebook. That's the nature of the case. And so um, I just started watching this random friend I met once um, and her husband. And so they had a child together and they, they're Christian, you know, they made all these Christian posts and everything. They're believers in, in, in God and they had this sweet, adorable baby that had cancer and they would be making prayers. They would have special drives at the church and praying and praying and praying and begging God for, for God to, to heal this, this precious child. And they would have videos of him in the hospital. I mean, let me just tell you, it was just, it just wrenched my heart to see this, um, this, this sweet child. And they, eventually, it's so sad, he died of cancer. Um, and they prayed and they prayed, begging God to spare this, this, this precious baby. Um, and so when this happens, I mean, we, 
we, uh, we're like, God, why would this happen? Why would you allow this? I mean, our experience of evil and suffering uh, and loss is just so emotionally overwhelming. Uh, and it's just so jarring to us. It, it shakes us to the, our inner core. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's why people can just say, I don't believe in God, I don't care what it is, you know? And they have this very emotional reaction because it feels so painful and so real and just so traumatic to our hearts. Our hearts wrench inside. Um, and so we, we have to be able to distinguish between two different problems here because we have to step back and see, okay, does this actually, if we're being objective, does this actually count against the existence of God? Does evil, suffering, and pain, the problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis would call it, does this actually count as evidence against the existence of God? And so we have to, from the outset, distinguish between the emotional problem of evil, which is apparent and jarring to us all, and the actual logical problem of evil. You have to distinguish them, because if you intertwine them, when someone's hurting, they don't care about anything logical. They don't care about any of that. And so we have to really ask, so is this something that should make you question your faith? Is this something that really undermines the existence of God? And so when we, when we step away from, we look at it, we're gonna see that it doesn't affect at all. It doesn't necessarily affect at all the clarity and the obviousness of the existence of God. And what we're gonna look at is, is that you can't even make sense of evil if God does not exist. So that as we'll see, evil ends up counting as a reason to believe in God, not to disbelieve. So I, I first wanna look at then the intellectual and the logical problem of evil. Um, and then we're gonna, then we'll go to the emotional problem because there's, there are two separate problems. They, they have to be distinguished. So believe it or not, the logical problem of evil as an argument against the existence of God is extremely popular. It's not something that belongs in you know, many leather-bound leather books, you know, dusty old books. Doesn't, it's not, not that kind of thing. It's not something that's only in ancient writings, ancient scribblings. This is an argument that is extremely popular and well-known in our, in our culture. It's in Hollywood, it's in books. And uh, parents, when you send your kids off to college, they will read books on this issue. They'll read literature on it. They'll read philosophy books on the problem of evil. Every uh, kid that you send to college will be faced with this. And so we, as parents, we need to have um, a response because, I mean, Abigail, my daughter, I mean, she's only five. I'm pretty sure she's five. Um, you know, she's, she's five, and, um, you know, she's already asking questions about sin and evil. She's five years old. This is, this is a, a problem that we all face. We face evil and suffering every day. We can't escape it. It's right in front of us. And so we can't deal with this question or objection to Christianity just by burying our heads in the sand because it is everywhere. And in fact, it's on TikTok. I mean, if things are on TikTok, you know they're popular, right? I mean, let's face it. There's a very popular kind of celebrity pastor, right? His son's on TikTok. And he is, his main reason for leaving Christianity and rejecting the faith of his father is the problem of pain and suffering and evil. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, the TikToks are clearly marketed to a younger demographic. Um, you know, I'm 37. I don't go on TikTok. I barely go on Instagram. I'm an old man, so I go on Facebook, right? Um, that's what they, that's all the kids say. It's like, oh, well, yeah, of course you're on Facebook, Nate. You're 37, right? Um, and just to prove, uh, you know, how common this objection is, even in Hollywood, I mean, this is pretty low-level stuff here. The problem of evil, and I repeat, 
the, the problem of evil appeared in Batman versus Superman, all right? I mean, when I first heard that title, I'm like, I mean, Batman's a guy who works out a lot, right? Superman can like lift trucks. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's clear. But anyways, that's another thing. Um, you know, so I thought it'd be a five-second movie, but, you know, Snyder figured out a way to make it really long as he does all things. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is incredible. It appears in Batman versus Superman. I mean, that's how basic it gets. I mean, you know, nine-year-olds watch this and 37-year-old millennial men watch this movie evidently too, right? So this is a popular, popular movie. And I want to quote to you Lex Luthor, who we know is like Batman, um, uh, Batman, Superman's arch nemesis here. And he doesn't believe in the existence of God. And he gives a problem of evil in Batman versus Superman. Um, he says... The problem of evil in the world, the problem of you on top of everything else, you above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horace, Apollo, Jehovah, Kel-El, Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, what we call God depends upon our tribe, Clark Joe, because God is tribal. God takes sides. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abomination. I'm not going to do the Lex Luthor. Mm, that's weird. Um, I figured it out way back. If God is all powerful, he cannot be all good. And if he's all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And neither can you be. They need to see you for the fraud that you are with their eyes, the blood on your hands. So yeah, I mean, supervillains are given the problem of evil now. I mean, so this is how popular it is. And so the way that, that Luther um, uh, formulated it and the way that... Um, not Martin Luther, Lex Luther. The way that, um, that Epicurus, who's a philosopher, he's just, I mean, Lex Luther here is basically mimicking what the ancient Greek philosopher um, Epicurus said. Um, and so this is a way that they formulate the problem of evil. This is kind of the basic, kind of knuckle-dragging way, the, the really simple way to formulate it. It's uh, one, God is maximally good, or you can put all good, depending on what word you want to express the, the, the highest good that, of what God is. All good is used sometimes as well. God is maximally powerful, that's two. And three, evil and suffering exists. Now, when you look at this, this is not an obvious contradiction, it's not. I mean, it's not like saying, I'm married and I'm not married, or God exists and he doesn't exist. I'm a pastor, I'm not. It's not a, it's not a clear and obvious Contradiction. It's just, it's just not. You look at it, you're like, okay, well, so what's the, what's the issue here? Um, and it only becomes a logical contradiction, a logical problem when you add four. And it, otherwise, it'll never generate to be one. For a maximally good being would eliminate evil and suffering as much as he possibly can. So if God's all-powerful and he's all-good, then there shouldn't be evil, but there is evil, Right? I mean, anybody who's fully clothed in their right mind can see that there's evil around us. There's terrible things that happen. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if God is all powerful and he's good, then nothing's gonna prevent him from stopping evil, right? And so if he's all good, he would wanna stop evil because he's all good. He's maximally good. Now, the problem with this whole line of reasoning, this argument is that, um, is it a good thing? to eliminate evil and suffering as much as you possibly can. You might think initially, but think about it for a second. I mean, I think we have reasons to doubt this um, immediately. 
Um, I have taken my kids to the doctor and I've seen the doctor inflict you know, pain on them, not like a, you know, needles and stuff, right? And they're screaming and crying for their well-being, for their good. Um, we have this horrible, terrible, awful um, staircase in our backyard. And it has these, it, for some reason, when the kids, especially from ages like two to three, or actually one to two, when they go up the staircase, they get splinters in their, in their hands and on their feet. And man, getting a splinter out of a toddler is the most horrific thing I've ever seen. I mean, the crying, it's like as if you were murdering them, screaming and crying, red face. Like my wife and I, we had to take breaks because they were screaming and their faces were so red. We eventually figured out that the best way to do it is to turn on YouTube and pretend like they don't notice it. But anyways, they really didn't like it, right? And so here I am inflicting this pain on my child for a greater good so that they would not get some horrific um, infection. I like the way C.S. Lewis famously put it. He says, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to the dentist? You know, that was said in the day, uh, you know, Lewis, you know, he's, he's deceased. Um, it was a long time ago when he said this, when they didn't have Novocaine. And so, man, going to the dentist was really a horrible experience. I'm kind of a wuss. I, there's nothing more than I hate going, I hate going to the dentist. I, I, I literally hate it. Some people can fall asleep. No, I'm just like holding on the whole time, sweating onto the thing. I, they don't have Novocaine and I still hate it. Um, so yeah, I haven't gone to the dentist in two years, you know, um, just floss a lot and you pray, you know, that's really, that's what you do. You got to have the, you know, and the special floss stuff, the one that you, you know, it's good. Um, so yeah, I'm not a fan, even with Novocaine. Um, so this is four, uh, this will resolve it. Now, if you add four star to one, two, and three, it actually shows that God and evil are in fact not a contradiction. It resolves it, so it's not a logical problem. And so I'm gonna read four star, if we can add that to one, two, and three, four star to resolve the contradiction. Four star, God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil and suffering that occurs, or a morally sufficient reason for permitting the evil and suffering that occurs. And so typically at this point, when you show to the skeptic or to the atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, um, you know, that, that God has a morally sufficient reason that resolves a contradiction. And what even just inquiring minds ask is they say, okay, so what's that reason? What's that morally adequate or good enough reason for God um, to uh, permit evil? And let me just start by, by saying that's a perfectly fair and legitimate question. Um, and there have been throughout the history of the church, throughout Christian thoughts, numerous responses uh, like 30 responses to why there's evil and suffering. But some of them are controversial and weird. Some of them are more plausible or less plausible. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go for the most, the, the, the two most biblically accepted, the, the, two mo the, 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 the first two that, that really is the most accepted in the literature, people are gonna agree on, has the widest agreement, has the most plausible biblical background for it, and makes the most sense. So these are the best, the two best explanations in my opinion. You can go on the internet and see tons more that resolve the issue. But these are just the two most popular, well-known, and I would say most biblically consistent. The first one is that God allows evil and suffering for his glory, for a greater good, such that 
without the evil occurring or happening or the suffering occurring or happening, a greater good would not be accomplished. I'm gonna say that again. God allows evil and suffering for greater goods such that without the evil and suffering, a greater good would not be accomplished. That's the first one. Second one is a little bit more complicated, but I, I, I think we can get a rough idea of what I'm saying. And that's to say God's thoughts, his mental states, his beliefs, everything he has are so beyond us. He's infinite, we are finite. So he's infinite, we are finite, are, are so beyond us that perhaps God has a reason that we may not be able to comprehend. Um, so an insect, like a, uh, a grasshopper, a roly-poly, um, which are a toddler's favorite insect, I might add. Um, roly-poly, like you're thinking about, you know, algebra and geometry. Roly-poly cannot comprehend algebra or geometry, whatever you were taught. <laughs> um, they, don't, they don't understand uh, uh, complex things like that we're able to form in our minds. And we're talking about insects and human beings. We're talking about two finite things, insect or grasshopper, uh, roly-poly, and a human being. But you see, the, the, the distance between us and God is greater than that because we're talking about two finite beings, but with God, that's not the case. We are talking about the finite, and we are talking about the infinite God of the universe, the greatest being. And so we may not have, I hate to break it to you, no matter how smart you think you are, we may not have the cognitive capability to comprehend God's reasons for why he permits evil. Now at this point, when you're having this conversation with you know, maybe a friend over coffee, um, the skeptic or the atheist is reduced to the position, well, you know, there are events like the Holocaust and there's genocide, there's horrible things that happen. And so God could not have a morally justifying reason for permitting events like that. And I, what you should say is he's making a claim, he's saying that, or she, um, is making a claim that God could not have morally adequate reasons for permitting, say, Holocaust or horrific events. Um, and you're, what you wanna say back is, oh, really now, okay. So how do you know God could not have a morally adequate or sufficient reason for permitting this evil in the world? How do you know that? How would you even know that? Have you surveyed every possible infinite reason as to why uh, God would allow something? Have you comprehended and done a survey? And when you have done a survey of every possible reason, how do you know there's not an additional reason that you haven't thought of? There's no way to know that unless you're an infinite being. And by the way, there's an infinite being that God exists, so <laughs> there's that. But you're, we're not infinite beings, we don't know. We can't go through every single reason that God could have for an event. Um, I mean, toddlers struggle to know the reasons why my parents make certain rules. I mean, so yeah, it's, it's very possible that an infinite being might have a reason that you can't either comprehend or maybe that you've never thought of. Um, and so th this has put kind of people in this position here where most philosophers, the vast majority of them are gonna say that this problem of evil, these are atheist, non-Christian philosophers. They don't believe God exists. They would say that the problem of evil is intellectually, we're not talking about the emotional part, is intellectually bankrupt, okay? This is a famous atheist philosopher, J.I. Mackey. He put it like this. 
we can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism, that's the belief in God, are logically inconsistent with one another. So there's no logical issue here. This is what William Rowe at Purdue uh, says. He says, some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God existence of a theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. So yeah, many, if not all, I mean, I mean, I think it's like up to 95%. I could be 97, last I checked, but would say that this, this argument, this, these are atheists. These are not believers. You know, they don't go to churches. They don't, they don't believe in God. They would say the problem of evil is intellectually bankrupt. It's not, doesn't go through. It doesn't work. It's not a good argument against God's existence. Um, and so what, what happens now? I mean, is they just, I mean, if you're gonna be an atheist, what's kind of the position you're in? And the only recourse they have at this point that we've seen is that, well, yeah, it doesn't show that evil and God are inconsistent, but what this shows is that evil and God, evil makes God improbable. Meaning, given the extent of evil and suffering in our world, it makes God's existence less likely. That's, that's the position they're at. And that, that means that they're trying to say that it's less likely that God has morally justifying uh, reasons for the evil that we see in this world. But, I mean, if you read the Bible, uh, there's plenty of things that happen that uh, God has reasons for that people in the stories would never think God would have a reason for. Um, and so it's hard to say that it's improbable. Um, if you think of the story of Joseph, I mean, this poor guy sold into slavery by his brothers. I guess his brothers didn't like him very much. That's a tough, that's a, that's a tough thing right there, isn't it? Sold him into slavery, and he is, you know, he's under Potiphar, and his wife makes a false accusation. Then he's thrown into prison. You know, to Joseph, I mean, you can see, like, God, why are these horrible events happening to me? Like, this is unfair, this is unjust. You can imagine him thinking, Golly, does God have a reason or is God just punishing me for something? What's going on here? Is God good? But what you read in the account of the Bible is that God has good reasons for having Joseph go through all of this. Namely, it saves the lives of many people. He's able to help Egypt and God gives him a prophecy where he's, where he's able to see what happens in the future and they save up grain and they save uh, hundreds and thousands of lives. And he goes through all of his suffering and pain. And so Genesis 50, 17 through 20 kind of shows that God does allow bad things to happen to people such that if he didn't have those bad things happen, a greater good would not have been accomplished. This is exactly what the scripture says. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers for selling him into slavery and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am not in the place of God. As for you, this is the point here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So they meant it for bad, God meant it for good. He had a good purpose behind it. And there's things you're probably going through that you think you know that is really bad, but God has a purpose for it to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Saved many, many lives. So like in the case of Joseph, you know, there might be something you're facing right now that is particularly traumatic and difficult, 
But years later, perhaps, I mean, maybe 20 years, maybe 10 years, that, might, that, that will bring about something good. Maybe it's not in your lifetime. That's why I said might. Maybe in 200 years, it'll help the human race. It'll help somebody. Uh, we're all interconnected as a society and things are small actions um, affect uh, and can bring about big results. There's a phenomenon known as a butterfly effect where basically a butterfly flapping its wings can bring about a tsunami. So that small effect can bring about huge results in a, in a certain system. Um, and that's just like actions we take in life. I mean, this is bizarre to think about, but you know, you deciding to tie your shoe rather than just stepping into the car could have saved you from a car accident. And maybe in that car accident, it'd be horrific and traumatic for you. And maybe, uh, maybe you, you spared, uh, a child would have died in that car accident and that child could have a cured cancer. You, we just don't know. We are not in a position to know what's gonna happen, how our actions now are gonna affect uh, this reality and society in 200, 300, even 50 years. We, we are just in no position to know any of this. Um, so the parts of the evil parts, the difficult parts, when we, stay, when we take a step back, contributes to something that's amazing and glorifies God ultimately. Um, St. Augustine um, said it like this. And were we able to get the, the, the painting thing figured out? Oh, we were. Okay, that's good. Um, St. Augustine said it like this. If you, if you look into like evil, you just concentrate on evil, it just feels awful and is horrible. But it's just like if you focus on the ugly parts of a painting. Every painting has like a black splotch or a brown splotch or some splotch, you know, some weird bright spot. If you focus in on the small parts of the painting, they in and of themselves may be not attractive and, and dumb or horrible. But when you step back and you see the, how it all contributes to the beautiful painting, um, then you, you see uh, basically what, what, what's going on here. You get a broader, broader picture, a broader idea. And I, if I could, yeah, that's, that's a painting. Where's the, where's the black spot at? Or, yeah, I mean, that doesn't, does that look good to you? I don't think that looks good. That looks kind of bad, right? And so that's like the evil you see. You're like, oh man, that's really, that's, that's a hideous thing right there. But when you step back, look at, that's a beautiful painting. I actually love the colors in there. Um, I'm a red and blue guy, so that's why it just kind of really stands out to me. But that's a beautiful painting. But, you know, it took that splotch there to make this kind of beautiful orchestra of, of, of colors here. And so that's, that, that's how it is with evil in our life. It contributes to a greater good. I'm not saying evil isn't evil. It's evil. I mean, it's terrible. But it contributes to something greater, a greater good, such that if that evil were not there, a greater good would not be accomplished. And so um, and when you factor in the fact that, yeah, God is, is high above us, this is what Isaiah says. And so we can't, this idea that God probably doesn't have a good reason. I mean, when you read Isaiah 55, eight through nine, just blows that idea apart. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God, as I said, so far above us, so infinite that we have no right intellectually to question his plan. We are on no moral grounds to question him. There are things God thinks that we won't even understand in heaven and in eternity. He is so far above us. And when we think about it, I mean, you really reflect upon it. There are things people do that you don't understand. That can be good uh, used for a good purpose. The one that always comes into mind that is really like vivid is a karate kid, right? Where um, 
you have, uh, they first starting out and then Mr. Miyagi, you know, says, okay, you're gonna be my student. And what happens in, in this whole thing is he has Daniel-san, you know, waxing, uh, you know, the, the cars and painting the fence, you know, and, and scrubbing the ground. And he has him do certain motions. And, you know, by, by, the, by the three days, you know, Daniel sees, like, Mr. Miyagi as just this guy who's a slave driver. You know, he has no purpose or intention behind any of this. And this is just between people. And so he's like, you know, I'm done with you. I'm leaving. That's it, Mr. Miyagi. You're just having me clean your cars. You're just having me paint your fence. You know, you're just taking advantage of me. You're not going to teach me karate. And so he says, it seems... At that point, all the movements he taught him were, you know, were giving him kind of muscle memory and reflex to block certain strikes. And so my point is, if that can happen with people, you gotta believe that's possible with an infinite, incomprehensible God. And so when you really think about the problem of evil, it has no ground to stand on whatsoever intellectually. To undermine Paul's point that God's existence is clear, and that it is obvious. Um, in fact, when you look at the evil in the world, the horrible things that happen, whether it's abuse of a child or whether it's um, scamming older people or hurting people that are unable to protect themselves, all these evil things that people do, if God does not exist, we cannot call those things evil. If there's no standard of right or wrong, there's no objective standard outside of us, then that's just preference. There's no evil or wrong. And so only evil makes sense if God exists. And so evil actually counts for the existence of God, not against the existence of God. Here's a kind of a clever or interesting way to put the argument. One, evil contrastively implies that there is a way the world ought to be, the way that the world should be. There is a way the world should be or ought to be only if there's an intention, a goal, or design, or purpose behind it. Three, so there is no intention or goal or purpose behind the world. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I said that wrong. I said no. <laughs> Clearly, there is an intention behind the world. Let me just say that again. So there is an intention or goal, design, or purpose behind the world. There is an intention or goal or, or design or purpose behind the world only if God exists. So God exists. So if God does not exist, we can't condemn horrendous events like the Holocaust as objectively evil. And so only if you have a lawgiver that provides a standard of right or wrong can evil even make sense when we call something evil. And then also the logical problem of evil assumes that there are laws of logic, laws of thought, laws of reasoning, like the law of non-contradiction. But on the atheist universe, all that exists is physical matter. You know, clumps of matter, atoms bashing atoms. There's no place for immaterial, non-physical, universal laws, and laws come from a lawgiver, and God has the standard and right and authority to impose those laws as God himself, the greatest good and the most logical being. And so, Logic doesn't make sense unless God exists. So all of the problem of evil assumes God's existence. Then when you factor in the fact that even giving arguments, I mean, what the non-believer is basically saying is that he can discern the mind of a possible being that's infinite to say that such a being couldn't have a reason. Well, how, how would you ever know that? Especially if 
You're, the whole universe is an accident. You being on this planet is an accident. Your brain is an accident, a byproduct of survival and evolution plus chance. So why would you trust your mind to formulate an argument about a hypothetical being you don't even think exists about whether or not an infinite being could have a reason? How would you even trust your mind to make such an argument if God did not exist? And so every argument against the existence of God assumes that God exists. So to argue against God is to ultimately presuppose or assume him while you're going through this. I love the way that Cornelius Van Til put it so well. He was on a train station. He was a Christian theologian and philosopher. And so he saw a little girl sitting on her father's lap and she was slapping him across the face saying, I hate you, daddy. And he observed that um, people who deny the existence of God and make arguments against God God's existence, or just like that girl, in order to slap God across the face, they have to be sitting on his lap intellectually to make arguments against his existence. And so the, so the ironic thing here is, is that the it evil is, uh, is evidence or proof that God exists in the final analysis. Now, I wanna say this. If you're having a hard time, you're struggling with emotional problems and suffering in your life, none of that helps. Doesn't, doesn't help too much. I mean, if, if at all, um, I'm gonna be honest with you, if my whole family got in some horrible car accident or whatever it is, and um, I wouldn't even care about the logical problem of evil. I wouldn't even think about that. I would be in so much agony and pain that I wouldn't care about anything you said. I mean, I don't wanna hear any of that if I'm going through it. I mean, could you imagine like if, if um, you got in some horrible wreck and I come visit you in the hospital and you're like, you know, falling apart, you're like, why would God allow this, Nate? And I'm like, like, you know, nah, God has a morally sufficient reason. You know, I mean, could you imagine? I mean, you'd slap me in the mouth if I said that to you. Or you'd be mad or something. Hopefully you wouldn't slap me. Um, I mean, the only person that would accept an answer like that is like Spock from Star Trek. Yes, nah, God has a morally sufficient reason. It's okay, you know. No one's gonna, you know, think like, oh yeah, God really comforted me that you said that God had a morally sufficient reason. That's not how you're gonna be. And so this is no way to solve the emotional problem of, of evil. And this is why I think Christianity is the only way to solve the emotional problem of suffering and pain. Because when we are crying out in pain to God as to why something happened in our life, it is only the Christian story that gives us an emotionally satisfying understanding of reality and everything that helps us face evil and suffering every day. And people often ask in their anger and in their tears and resentment, you know, why does, why does God allow, you know, bad things to happen to good people? Why is this happening? I love the way R.C. Sproul said it. He says, well, that actually only happened once and he volunteered. And that, of course, is a person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, unlike us, was sinless, and yet he experienced evil and suffering that we can't even imagine. Um, and the Bible teaches that, he, that God had a good reason for allowing that evil and suffering to be on his only son, Jesus Christ. So I'm pretty sure for us as sinners, God could have a re good reason for allowing evil and suffering in our life. And in the case of Jesus, it saved, it saved uh, people who trust in Christ. It's, it's amazing. It brought salvation to the human race. Um, and you see, on the Christian worldview, you and I, we're sinners. Every single person here, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you like it, we have made mistakes. We have sinned against God. We have committed cosmic treason. And the Bible 
uh, it says that God is the greatest. God is the greatest being. There's nothing greater than God. He is maximally just. Um, and if he weren't maximally just, then he wouldn't be the greatest. Um, so we have sin against a maximally just, infinite being, a God whose justice is so far beyond ours in greatness. What do we deserve if we sin against an infinite being? What I deserve, what we all deserve, is an infinite punishment. If we have sinned against a maximally great being, we deserve a maximally great punishment. And you see what biblical Christianity teaches us, instead of giving us this infinite maximal punishment, God came down in the person and work of Jesus Christ to take that infinite punishment in our place as a substitute in our, in our place. He took, as an infinite person, he took that infinite punishment. He endured that for us, for you, because he loves you. The punishment of hell, which we will never receive. You trust in Christ, you will never go to hell because Jesus took hell in your place and the suffering on the cross. There is nobody ever, not even your mother, there's nobody ever who has suffered for you more than Jesus. Nobody has experienced the amount of pain for you other than Jesus Christ, the God who created you, the God of the universe. So that no matter what you are going through right now, no matter how intensely painful, how intensely difficult, how challenging or hard, whatever you're facing, Jesus understands your pain and your sorrow better than anybody else. Jesus knows what you're going through. He's praying for you, interceding for you, and he is supporting you through it all. He is here to comfort you, hear your prayers. And according to Romans 8.28, even if you are suffering and you're crying out to him, he is working all things out for your good, even in the suffering and in the pain that you're facing. He knows how much those things that you're facing right now are causing you pain and hurt because he went through even more pain and more suffering that we cannot even comprehend for you because he loves you. I love the way that Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga puts it. As a Christian sees things, God does not stand idly by. He's just standing up there coldly observing. Coolly observing the suffering of his creatures, he enters into and shares our suffering. He endures the anguish of seeing his son, the second person of the Trinity, consigned to bitterly cruel and shameful death of the cross. Christ was prepared to endure the agonies of hell itself in order to overcome sin and death and the evils that afflict our world and to confer on us a life more glorious that we can imagine. He was prepared to suffer on our behalf, to accept suffering, of which we can form no conception. So the ultimate solution to the problem of evil is Jesus Christ. He suffered for you more than anyone so that you would not be in pain forever, but you would be in comfort in his love and his peace and his grace and his mercy forever. He endured everlasting, this sort of infinite torment, if I could say it that way, infinite torment, so that you can have everlasting life and peace in him. Jesus was rejected so that you would be forever accepted and so that he could comfort you 
and wipe every tear from your eye, comfort every pain that you've ever faced and cherish you forever in his kingdom. I love what Revelation 21, three through four says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And this is a gift of eternal life that Jesus earned and merited by his blood, sweat, and tears so that you would never have to earn or merit it through your blood, sweat, and tears. All you have to do is trust, receive, and believe Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And, and you will come to a place where you'll never have mourning ever again, no more crying, no more pain, no more disappointments, no more loss, and the shock of, of disappointment and pain that you have to face. That will be wiped away forever. If you trust in Jesus, you will receive this greatest gift of being loved and cherished because we are clothed in the perfect righteousness, Jesus Christ, by faith alone. Let us give thanks to God for his glorious gift.